Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Professor Simon Jackman, uh, Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney, but more importantly, CEO of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. And it's a, it's a thrill, it's a real honour that so many of you have, have joined us uh, tonight. Uh, indeed, uh, two that I can see, members of the House and, and, um, and, and, and other members and senators uh, signed up uh, as well. And my apologies if I'm not recognising you from, from the podium just now. Uh, before any going, uh, going any further, I, I, I do acknowledge uh, the Ngunnawal peoples who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra area and pay respect to their elders, past and present, and indeed of all Australia's Indigenous peoples. The mission of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney is to deepen Australia's relationship, uh, understanding of the United States and our understanding of Australia's relationship with the United States, and the deepening of the relationship follows from that. <laughs> But uh, tonight's event, a discussion of a new report by the Centre on the future of the Australian-US alliance in this place, with this audience, is bang on our mission. I'll in introduce the report's authors and welcome Secretary Adams in just a moment. But first, let me set the stage for this analysis of the future of the Australia-US relationship. There are many facets to the Australia-US relationship in economics and business, in trade and investment, in science and technology, in entertainment and the arts, all channels in which we also find vibrant person-to-person -person relationships are the real lifeblood of the Australia-US relationship. And all of that is grist for the mill for us at the US Study Centre. But tonight, we're focusing on the defence relationship between Australia and the US, a topic of immense importance and relevance to this audience to the scholars and the researchers at the US Study Centre and our students back at the University of Sydney, but also to the Australian people and to the nation. Both major parties in Australian politics place Australia's long-standing defence alliance with the United States at the heart of their thinking and their advocacy about Australian national security and Australian foreign policy. Both major parties further agree that a free and open Indo-Pacific is in Australia's national interests and one of the touchstones of Australian foreign policy. At the same time, though, there is a broad consensus in both Australia and the United States about the rapid uptick in the strategic importance of our neighbourhood here in Australia, and in particular, a shared understanding of the challenges to the international rules-based order posed by the rapid rise of China. Now, on the American side, Canonical statements on American defence and foreign policy thinking unambiguously make it clear that the United States considers it to be a new era of strategic competition, that the world is witnessing a return to great power rivalry. And interestingly for Australia, the geographic domain of that rivalry is our own backyard. And as we well know, Australia's relationship with China is different from the United States' relationship with China. Moreover, this is not like the old Cold War. At no point was the Soviet Union Australia's largest trading partner, nor as strong a partner economically as China is with the United States. So I often tell the team at the United States Study Centre there's never been a more vital time to be working on international affairs from an Australian perspective that it is their charge to help us develop a strategic vocabulary and an accompanying resolve appropriate to the times in which we live. 
Now, Dennis Richardson is known to many of us in this room. Uh, he had many roles in Australian government, including serving as Australia's ambassador to the United States. And Dennis served on the board of the United States Study Centre, where he stressed to me that the Australian-US relationship cannot be mired in nostalgia nor in sentimentality. And so recent developments in international affairs and in Australian and American strategic thinking means that Dennis's admonition is coming true one way or another. The Australia-US relationship is indeed entering a new chapter. In terms of the challenges the Alliance is going to be asked to address, where and how those challenges are addressed, and the opportunities that will arise for both countries and our neighbours along the way. And that's the focus of this report tonight, this new chapter in the Australia-US relationship that arises as a consequence of those strategic developments that I just summarised. The report's authors, are Dr Charles Adele and Dr John Lee, both of them non-resident fellows at the United States Study Centre. Charles is American and John is Australian. Charles is a, uh, a product that I used to see a lot of in my time in the United States. One foot in academia, but one foot in the world of diplomacy, and indeed taught at the Naval Postgraduate War College, bringing his deep knowledge of history into the classroom in front of uh, senior people entering senior positions of leadership in the US Navy, war fighters encountering the great lessons of history from, from Charles. And Charles brings that sensibility to bear, not only in his recent book, The Lessons of Tragedy, but that infuses his thinking and the perspective he brings to this report. John Lee um, wears two hats, one with us at the US Study Center, but he's also affiliated with the Hudson Institute in the United States. And, and more than a few people in the audience will re remember that John uh, served as a, a senior advisor to Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop in this building, 2016 through 2018. And what is, I think, a, a, a quite a rare treat, um, we have the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade with us tonight, Francis Adamson. Um, I was asking Francis before, is it a rare thing for her to, to moderate a session tonight, not just be a speaker herself, but to uh, uh, engage in, her, in the role she'll be engaging in tonight. And she assured me that from time to time, but nonetheless, we feel very privileged to have you with us tonight, uh, taking time out of what is a busy schedule. As this warm-up would, would point to, we've got an Osmin coming up this weekend where some of these issues will be addressed. Um, so thank you especially for taking time out on a sitting night. Um, and so at this point, what I'd like to do is to invite the three of you um, to, the, to the stage. Um, we're going to get, um, um, I believe we're going to get a summary of the report and then, and then it's over to Francis. It's your show after that. Thank you so much. Welcome everybody and, and, and welcome the authors and, and secretary uh, uh, to the stage. Thank you. I can also speak very loudly. Uh, thank you very much, Simon, for the introduction. Thank you especially, uh, Secretary Adamson, uh, for taking the time uh, to be here. And thank you to all of you uh, for sacrificing a Monday night. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of other things to do. Uh, but we particularly appreciate your time, given the fact that it is the Monday 
before the full fever pitch of Osman uh, sets in. And I have a feeling that there are a fair amount of folks in the audience who are finishing those policy briefings, uh, the briefing binders, and the talking points. Uh, so think of this as useful or not so useful grist for the mill. Um, now, Simon had laid out to you what the mission of the U.S. Study Center is. Uh, analysis of America, insights for Australia. Uh, John and I are a little bit more ambitious and definitely a lot more foolish. Uh, because generally, as Simon has laid out, the idea is to give policy recommendations about how what is happening in and with the United States is relevant for Australia. This report does something a little bit different. It actually makes recommendations to both Canberra and to Washington. Now, let me start with some basics. By far the number one investor into Australia in terms of employment, in terms of exports, in terms of capital expenditures, in terms of contributions to GDP is the United States if we're looking at American firms. Similarly, Australian firms invest more in the United States than anywhere else. There's more investment into the United States than China, Middle East, or in Latin America. You know, since 1951, we have had a treaty alliance, and we all know that we have fought side by side for the past 100 years. And when we think of the realm of values, when we think about the freedom of inquiry, free speech and peaceful protest, when we think about religious liberty, democracy in a word, it's really incumbent on us to recognize that it's our values that are the bedrock not only of our prosperity, but our shared security. Okay, now we can get honest because there's some challenges ahead of us. And as close as America and Australia are, as much as we celebrate mateship, if we're being honest with each other, we also have to admit that we're a little bit frustrated by each other, but we're frustrated for different reasons. Washington is frustrated that Australia would like to, it would like to see Australia being more consistently engaged in the Indo-Pacific, less shy about calling out some of the more destabilizing aspects of Chinese behavior, and less dependent on trade to China. Australia is a little frustrated with Washington for not necessarily being clear on the objectives, on the strategy, and on the resources that it's putting behind its Indo-Pacific strategy. And frankly speaking, a little frustrated by some of the seemingly counterproductive actions against allies and partners as opposed to harnessing allies and partners. Now, it's important to stress that disagreement between close allies is normal. It's actually a healthy thing as well. But without bilateral responses that are grounded in an honest dialogue, we can very quickly move to papering over differences and looking for lowest common denominator approaches. And the point is, in the environment that we find ourselves in today, that is an insufficient response. So given the stakes and the magnitude of the challenge, what we would like to suggest in the paper, in the report, is that the policy and indeed the political frame of the alliance needs to be reset. And we cannot only think about where we overlap. 
you think of the Venn diagram, Australia here, the United States here, that's where we overlap. That is an insufficient way to think about where the alliance needs to go moving forward. And instead, we'd like to suggest a more strategic approach. So the first part of that more strategic approach is recognizing the fact that the challenge to the Australian-American alliance moving forward is China. China appears increasingly determined to carve out a Sinocentric Asia, and it's attempted to do so in a number of different ways. Through a combination of coercive measures meant to intimidate and silence dissenting voices, uh, simultaneously through economic inducements meant to shove those to the side, and through carving alternative institutional arrangements that are meant to lock in Beijing's advantages. Now, please don't mistake what we are saying. China is an indispensable economic and dim diplomatic player in the region. And a strategic approach cannot possibly be a realistic approach if it's meant to shun, ignore, or isolate China. That is not what we are talking about. Instead, what we're trying to frame is talking about the collective approach that the United States and Australia can take to set the terms upon which China is engaged. Now, in the United States, the comprehensive challenge that China presents is probably the only thing these days that automatically has bipartisan consensus. And there's a, indeed a growing appetite in Washington to have a more set of assertive set of policies against China's economic coercion, its growing military presence, its worsening human rights record, and its drive to dominate key technologies and industries of the future. It's also really critical to point out that while this is being driven by the Trump administration, all indicators are that this new approach is broadly bipartisan and very likely to outlast the Trump administration. And for allies of the United States, this means that it's likely to see more results for more support, more buy-in, and more burden sharing. So where do our interests as two sovereign nations overlap, and where do they diverge? Now, I think it's pretty clear that in the defense and the intelligence arenas, we're likely to see more and growing cooperation, uh, whether in terms of interoperability uh, between our forces, if we're talking force posture, if we're talking greater intelligence sharing, or the hosting of American assets in Australia. I would also suggest that when we begin to talk about upgrading improving our regulatory and legal frameworks, both to make sure that our critical infrastructures are safe, to make sure that we can mitigate uh, the effects of cyber espionage, and to make sure that we actually safeguard our own democratic institutions, you're likely to see a large and growing convergence. Moreover, both countries uh, do not want to see a Sino-centric Asia where Chinese, or I should say, Chinese Communist Party norms prevail. And nor do either country want to see de facto, or in fact de jure, vassal states popping up. And I think there's going to be increased coordination about how to work together on that. All right, well, if that's the end of the report, there was no need to have written the report in the first place. Because of course, the conversation gets more interesting not where we agree, but where we depart. And so the question becomes, if Australia and the U.S. both agree about the nature of the challenge that China poses, 
why are there significant differences between our two countries, and more importantly, what can we do about them? Uh, so in order to make sure you really understand this, we're going to bring up someone who speaks Aussie for you for the second half of this. John. Uh, thank you all for giving up your Monday night. Uh, Francis, I had the pleasure of serving in government when Francis was uh, first the ambassador in China and then uh, the senior advisor to Prime Minister Turnbull and then, of course, Secretary of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, I had the pleasure of working with you and learning from you. So, Francis, I appreciate uh, your time moderating tonight. Uh, w in my lifetime, anyway, I have heard every American president say, or words to the effect, there is no greater ally or friend than Australia. But as Charles mentioned, we know that there are differences when it comes to China uh, between the United States and Australia. We wrote this report because uh, we think that it is dangerous at a time like this to focus on those many things that we agree on and to ignore or sweep under the carpet uh, those things that we do not agree on. So my task in the next few minutes is to uh, try to uh, understand why is it that the United States and Australia disagree uh, with in important respects on China when we agree on the threat in many respects that China poses uh, to the things that we hold dear. Uh, the first reason, a lot of it comes down to geography and the different roles played by the United States and Australia. Uh, the United States is a maker and defender of the international order and the system. Australia is very much a system taker. And most times we have to adapt to uh, the order that we find ourselves uh, positioned in. Uh, while Australia has been one of uh, America's most forward-leaning allies, and I think with Japan we have been the most forward-leaning ally, uh, we are usually hesitant to get out in front in areas that do not involve direct Chinese coercion or intimidation. Uh, second, the United States as a superpower naturally has the capacity to compel other states or deter other states from doing things that they would otherwise do. Australia largely does not, and we tend to exhaust possibilities for uh, persuasion before considering other more coercive alternatives. Uh, third, the United States is far more willing to contemplate sudden profound shifts in policy uh, with respect to other great powers, and you've seen this throughout uh, American history. Australia prefers to change things incrementally. Uh, this is because Australia needs to engage the commitment of Washington and the responses of other states uh, before we uh, commit to radical changes in policy. We need more explicit guarantees of cover and reassurance from the United States and other countries. And of course, as you know, there are differences on the economic uh, front. Now, it uh, could be an awkward thing to say, but the reality is that in a short, medium term, uh, Australia benefits 
uh, to a large degree from the lack of economic liberalization in China because that lack of market-based reform in China encourages excessive, even irrational, capital investment. And this is great for our commodity-dominated export uh, country. The nature of our relatively arm's-length economic interaction with China is significant. Now, you may say China is our largest trading partner. Why do I call it arm's length? Because if you look at what we trade, it's commodities, it's agricultural goods, uh, and we sell tourism and uh, uh, education services, which means the Chinese are coming here. The point is that we do not, to the same extent, have firms actually operating inside China, and our firms do not uh, butt heads with the Chinese political economy. We largely, uh, for the moment, uh, escape or circumvent the worst aspects of the opaque Chinese political economy. Now, with respect to the US-China uh, economic tensions that are currently occurring, the truth is that Australia has very little information on the kind of deal that the US will want or the US will be content with. This means that it makes it difficult, uh, if not impossible, for Australia to calculate the risks and the benefits of joining on to any more forward-leaning economic action against China. As a smaller country, we also tend to like institutions, even seriously flawed institutions. So we recognise the, the serious problems of the World Trade Organisation, for example, but our default position is to preserve the integ integrity and relevance of the WTO. In contrast, the Trump administration's frustrations with the fundamental inability of the WTO, in my view, to address uh, a whole host of illegitimate economic actions by the Chinese has led Washington to downgrade uh, relations or emphasis on the WTO and instead attempt a bilateral reordering of their economic relationship with China. They can attempt to do that, we cannot. Uh, as a superpower, the United States is used to being criticised. It just comes with the territory. Uh, in contrast, it is far more important for Australia to be seen as a good neighbour and a good regional citizen. And therefore, we work far harder than the United States to seek consensus uh, amongst other countries before acting uh, in any coercive way. So the result is that the United States is prepared to take action and try to bring others along after the fact, whereas we prefer to build a coalition uh, before we take tough action. Now, I know I've used a lot of international relations jargon, so let me rephrase what I've said uh, in terms that some of you may be more familiar with, and that is the game of poker. Uh, great powers tend to be what poker players call loose aggressive players. They almost always stay in the game. They will play with a wide variety of hands, good and bad. They are much more likely to bluff. They are much more likely to call or raise the stakes. And they play with the mentality of wanting to win, wanting to win the pot on the table. Smaller powers tend to be what poker players call tight passive players. They play a relatively small number of hands, and they only do so when they have a good one. They don't like to bluff. They tend to avoid confrontation with other players. 
and they fear isolation on the poker table with respect to other players. They play with a fear of losing rather than the anticipation of winning big. Now, what about some uh, initial recommendations as to how we can narrow these differences and strengthen the alliance uh, to produce more coordinated action on China, which is what we need to do? And I'll race through these uh, so we have time uh, to, to, to discuss other things. First, we've got to be in the business of spreading risk and spreading benefit between allies. This means that strategic and tactically important decisions uh, taken by the United States have to be uh, game planned. They have to be coordinated in advance. Smaller countries like us need to know what the institutional outcome or the intended institutional outcome is going to be. Australia, for example, will have a very low risk tolerance for a perpetual US-China uh, economic war if we don't actually know what the intended outcome is going to be. Second, a basic risk management approach is to di diversify. Now, I know that when you talk about diversifying markets to business people, they roll their eyes and look at you like you just don't understand how the economy works. Now, our counter-argument would be this. Uh, geopolitics doesn't operate independently of geoeconomics and vice versa. In the US, the conversation is what decoupling looks like. In Australia, it should be about diversification. Now, this is actually not as radical a conversation as uh, many business people might think. Business people and firms reduce their risk all the time. They diversify their risk all the time. They look at their supply chains and diversify those. They look at their sources of capital, their sources of human capital, their markets, their suppliers, and so on. The difference is that businesses in Australia in particular only think of diversification in economic terms. They ought to think of diversification also in geopolitical or political risk terms. So as we know, China will occasionally inflict or threaten to inflict on other economies costs for non-commercial reasons taken by governments of those countries. It is the obligation of boards and chief executives to consider those geopolitical risks uh, when they make commercial decisions for their companies. It is part of their due diligence to do so. Finally, Australia has uh, local knowledge and local standing uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific region. One of the virtues of allowing more Australian input into American strategy is that once agreed upon, we are often in a better position to sell it regionally. It is important to disagree uh, openly and constructively behind closed doors at the highest levels, but we need to disagree not just about what we should do, but why it is uh, that, that we have come to a different position. Now, there are other things we need to do, and they may say banal, they, they may sound banal, and I'll race through them, perhaps we can discuss them. We need to invest more and in the right places to compete successfully. If we don't have dollars behind it, it's not a strategy. We need to be more upfront with our populations as to the nature of the Chinese regime and what that means. I know that is slowly occurring, but this contest between the United States and China, it is not a values-free contest between a, an established power and a rising great power. 
there are significant differences between what those great powers want if they were in a dominant position. In a time of enhanced strategic competition, effective strategic networks and relationships have to work. The relationships we prioritise, it should not be seen as a social club where we are best friends with all countries. Now, we don't have to speak publicly this way, but we have to choose carefully the countries that we focus on uh, in terms of putting strategic and other resources uh, into. Uh, finally, we have to remember that China's primary strategy, if you like, is to ease the United States out of Asia. And, and the way of doing this without any kind of conflict is to degrade, is to weaken, is to dilute, uh, is to spoil the credibility of American alliances in the region. This was uh, a large part of the reasoning why Charles and I decided to embark uh, on this paper, which begins this discussion, uh, and I hope we, we can continue it. Thank you. indeed, uh, John and Charles. Uh, let me just uh, complete the acknowledgements. I think, Simon, you gave a very broad acknowledgement of, of, uh, of those who are attending, but I particularly want to acknowledge uh, the presence of Senator David Fawcett, who is <coughs> chair of the Joint Standing Committee uh, of, uh, of Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, and a, and a fellow South Australian, I should uh, also acknowledge that too. Um, my colleague, the Secretary of the Department of Defence, Greg Moriarty, uh, is also in the audience. Greg and I work uh, extremely closely, but we don't always swap diary notes, and I think we've both been surprised to see each other here this evening, but that speaks to the very strong support that the US Studies Centre enjoys, both from uh, Greg's department and from mine. Now, I know uh, members and senators have been uh, acknowledged, and I also want to acknowledge the, the many staffers in the audience too, having been a staffer myself, I know how hard uh, we, you, they work. Um, but I also want to acknowledge there are a number of both current colleagues and former colleagues, and of course, I should acknowledge uh, a former colleague now, a member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma, also we look forward to the, the contribution that you'll make, Dave. Now, why did I agree to be a uh, facilitator or a moderator this evening, you might wonder? Well, I mean, as a first step, and I think they've both demonstrated why, I have at various times, I've worked more closely with John, but I've known Charles for a while and, and been an avid reader of his work, and I've got a, a very high regard for the work that they do and that they've done here in this publication. And kind of assuming that a number of you will have read it, uh, when it was released, and those of you who haven't read it will have been scanning it in the course of the evening and will doubtless read it from cover to cover, including uh, the, ver the very uh, interesting end notes uh, in these sorts of things. End notes always repay careful reading. But, uh, but uh, a particular reason why I agreed to be here this evening was that uh, I'm a very strong supporter of what indeed is, uh, I think, one of the the third recommendations that the two authors make, talk more to the public. Now, you may not exactly regard yourselves as members of the public, although we all are in one respect. Some of us work very closely with constituents, others are engaging in other ways. But the, the more detailed sentence that flows under this heading is, 
in both Australia and the United States, more public discussion is needed about the challenges associated with China's rise. I couldn't agree more, not just more public discussion about that important issue, but more public discussion about foreign and defence policy generally, about Australia's national interests, about the realistic challenges that our relationship with major powers, and I use the plural advisedly, present to us. And I had a sense that you would all feel much the same, and that's why I've agreed to moderate this evening. Now, a good moderator ensures that there are there is uh, ample time for questions, at a minimum the time that the run sheet allocates. I think that gives me about a minute more to speak. <laughs> uh, but I also want to encourage, because my sense is that there will be quite a number of questions, and if I may be so bold on what is not my home territory, uh, I'd like to ask each of you, when you ask a question, to please stand to make sure it's a question to identify who you are, no matter how well known you may be to those of us here, uh, and to, to make it reasonably brief. I'd like to take them in brackets of three, um, because I'm indulging the two authors, I'm going to give the authors an opportunity to pick and choose which elements of questions they might find most interesting to answer. But we're very fortunate that uh, Charles and John are not the only people writing on this subject. And in fact, I think we all probably feel that if we were able to, vote our, to devote our whole working day simply to reading what is published either about China or about China and the United States or about the United States itself, that would be a full-time job. So we're fortunate that we've got a number of people writing also, a number of people prominently involved in public debate. So while you're framing your questions, I'm going to ask a quick one uh, to Charles and another one to John. And uh, for Charles, the central tenet of Hugh White's latest book, How to Defend Australia, is that US influence in the Indo-Pacific is almost certain to decline. How do you perceive the future of US leadership in the long term? And what more can Australia and the US do on the diplomatic as opposed to the security front to shape an Indo-Pacific region that is conducive to our shared interests? That was a, a, an explicit objective of the Foreign Policy White Paper published in 2017. And while you're thinking about that, uh, to John, uh, my predecessor, Peter Vardis, who's a very um, eminent strategic thinker who publishes very succinctly, doesn't tend to publish big, thick books other than his 400-page India economic strategy, uh, but also makes very succinct com contributions in the blogosphere. Uh, Peter's identified the need for a new strategic equilibrium, John, and in the Indo-Pacific he includes explicitly India, Japan, Indonesia and ASEAN. Does the recent focus on intensified US-China competition risk distracting us from the importance of other regional powers? Encouraging you to give quick questions, I'm going to encourage, notwithstanding, uh, there'll be meaty questions from there, and what I've just asked are not necessarily straightforward either. But Charles, really quickly, if you could, and then John, and then we'll throw to you, and my assumption is that there are going to be microphones, or we will sometimes somehow be able to hear each other in this space. Charles. Uh, terrific. Uh, but you've thrown to me at least two questions, ah. and I will give you a yes-no answer Fine. so we can get 
Um, let me just uh, start uh, briefly by saying the favorite word that I've learned since I've moved to Australia is contestability. We don't use that term in the United States. But this, as democratic societies, is what we do. We debate. Right? We, it's not diktat. We debate. And so you asked about Hugh White's take. You pointed to our take. There are multiple entrants in the conversation. That is a good thing. In a democratic society, before we make decisions of where we're spending our precious dollars, we have to debate to understand what it is that we're willing to do and might, what might be a bridge too far. Uh, and I say that because I actually think that Hugh White has done an enormous service in stirring the pot. I just think his conclusions are all wrong. I wanted to be concise. Particularly, uh, you asked about his, uh, his argument that the United States is a declining power and likely to exit the region. And I would like to ask him, I would, he's not on stage so we can't have the debate, so I'm gonna hog the mic, based on what? Because if we look at the long-term structural drivers of the American economy, it's going like gangbusters. We look at the relatively healthy demographic profile. We look at American history, which has been deeply embedded in the Asia Pacific, nay, the Indo-Pacific region mm -hmm. for the past 235 plus years. And we look at where American businesses are placing their bets, and it is all in this region. There is no way the United States is withdrawing from this region. So I think that is the wrong logic upon which to base an argument. Um, your second question about, and I agree with you, this is far broader than just the military and strategic lane we're talking about. We're talking about a strategic approach, which necessarily encompasses the diplomatic approach. And all I would say is that one of the unhelpful ways that I find to frame this discussion, and you hear this a lot uh, here, uh, certainly around Southeast Asia, is that there are two partners of choice. One for security, the other for economics. And first of all, I don't think that really necessarily accords with the facts as I tried to lay out to you on the former on economics. But two, this competition, it's not a confrontation, it's a competition, is largely being played outside of the military lane. There is a military strategic aspect to this. There is no doubt about this. But the question is, which countries are placing diplomatic, no less economic bets? So if you focus too much, if all the discussion tends to be on what level of GDP we are putting into defense spending as opposed to where our diplomatic bets are being placed and how much we are willing, frankly, sorry, it's the unpopular thing to say, how much we are willing to spend for economic resilience at home, no less what we're willing to do on our own and collectively in the region, it doesn't matter what the security debate is. Okay, thanks, Charles. Very clear from your answers, I think, that I was not asking Dorothy Dixies. Uh, John, over to you. Okay. The new strategic equilibrium, I, I, I don't have an inherent issue with that term or, or the thinking behind it, but I would make two points. That one, if you do the numbers in a region, there is no viable, possible, stable balance without a fully engaged United States. Just do the numbers and it's just not possible. The second thing is, yes, you want to bring more players into it, India, Japan, etc. but you need, in my view, the United States to play a central coordinating view. Coordinating view. India and Japan are not ever really 
going to coordinate things in, in a highly effective strategic way. Uh, Australia and Japan is almost a quasi-alliance, quasi, uh, quasi but it needs the United States to play that coordinating view, uh, coordinating role. And if you think about what um, China is trying to achieve, they're trying to simplify the chessboard. They're trying to remove all other players and make it into a contest between the United States and China with other players essentially neutralised. That obviously favours China because most of the major players um, do not seek a Sino-dominated uh, region. Um, I can't help but resist jumping to the first question. I don't think Hugh Wright's conclusions are wrong. His assumptions are wrong. His assumptions are wrong because, one, he reduces the region to the US and China and wipes everyone out. That's just not the reality of the region. Two, he fundamentally assumes that the US is deterrable, but China is not deterrable. So you can do whatever you want, but the Chinese will bear any cost to achieve your aims. And therefore, if one side cannot shift, let's shift the other side to ensure that there is no major power war. Now, I think if you begin with those two assumptions, you actually end up in a place very close to a China choice. But that is not, the, the, the first assumption doesn't re reflect reality, and the second assumption um, is, is simply not true. China can be deterred just like any other country. Uh, back to France's original question, this is why we do need to bring more players in, but those players, I think, need to be coordinated uh, with the United States, more so rather than less so. All right, thank you. Well, the uh, easy questions have been asked and answered then. Uh, let's move on to your questions. And uh, if, if three of you would like to indicate a willingness to ask, I'm sure microphones will be made available. And the lights are quite bright. So first one up the back there, Andrew Lee, I recognize you through the brightness of the light. Sorry, Francis, I'll try not to stand behind the light. Um, thanks for a couple of fascinating presentations there and for a really engaging report. Um, John, I thought you made a really powerful case for diversification on the economic front uh, in the age of, uh, uh, of Xi. Uh, but I wonder why you didn't also talk about the value of diversification on the political front in the age of Trump. Uh, surely it would be symmetrical to think that the more economic and political instability Australia has, the more it should not only diversify its trading partners, but also its political alliances, moving to build stronger relationships with countries like Canada, uh, Korea, Singapore, Indonesia and the like. Okay, thank you. That's the first question. I'm leaving, I mean, my colleagues are very good at taking notes. I know this and they'll come back. Second question, anyone else you'd like to ask on? Good evening, uh, my name is Kim Rollins. I'm a student at the Australian National University. One of my observations is that great powers have mainly fallen not from just from military uh, threats from without, but crumbling from within. My concern is that the battle is, seems to be raging within all those societies. So we have on one hand the American idea with unalienable rights, first freedoms, such as religious freedom and all the rights and responsibilities, an economic model. On the other hand, you have the China dream with its economic juggernaut. And now we see uh, within these societies, uh, whether it be Hong Kong or 
socialism in uh, America and the contest against the, the centre-right, how can that message of social cohesion and uh, whether it's uh, a, some kind of pragmatic compromise in, in international relations, but what about within countries? Because that's beneath the military threshold, but no less dangerous to the stability of, of our nations. Thank you. Anyone prepared to ask a third? Okay. Andrew Hastie. Evening all, Andrew Hastie. Um, Member for Canning, let's flip 2016. Let's say an anti-establishment candidate from the left, Democratic Party gets elected. Does that change the US a lot, a little bit, or not at all? Okay, three very good questions and sub-questions. Uh, I'm going to leave it to, perhaps uh, we might start with you, Charles, and then to John. Um, now, I'm not going to uh, make huge efforts to hold you accountable to answer the particular questions, because I think the weight of the audience is sufficient um, pressure for accountability. Okay. Charles, on to you. Uh, I'll take, in brief, uh, the second two questions, leaving you the first or whatever else you want to do, John. Um, so first, uh, your question. If an anti-establishment far-left figure in the U.S. takes the reins, how does that change things? So first, it's not going to be far-left. It's just politically not going to happen. But the question becomes, if it is a more progressive uh, left-leaning candidate that becomes the Democratic nominee and then becomes the President of the United States in 2020, how does that change what I've just talked about? And I think the answer is not much. Because you would be surprised if I told you that some of the more forceful forward leaners on being willing to stand up for American democracy, no less democratic allies, are folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. You wouldn't be that surprised if I told you it was people like Joe Biden, uh, some of the other more establishment figures. And yet, already, in their written speeches, in the articles that they've put forth, they have said that a core tenant of what they see as a democratic foreign policy, and I'm purposefully pointing to the more left-leaning candidates, is to have a democratic approach for what is happening with the onslaught of authoritarian regimes. So I can't tell you for sure, because we don't know there are too many hypotheticals. Uh, they would have to get their sea legs. But I also think if you begin to look at the folks who are shaping up behind most of the candidates, if you look at their statements, I would refer you to Axios Online because they actually have where all the candidates stand on China as of this morning, and it's not that dissimilar. In terms of, I want to link that to the uh, second question that was asked about what's happening inside of us. And by us, we're different, but broadly liberal democratic societies. And how effective can we be because authoritarian societies indeed can set their objectives much more clearly and potentially execute them, if not necessarily have a very good feedback. Uh, so I actually think that we have a broader challenge than we have scoped in many ways, because at the, since the end of the Cold War, our strategic muscle memory has atrophied, because we could let it atrophy. But so too is our democratic muscle memory because we've gotten out of the business of talking about why it's important 
that we have the institutions, norms, and values that are truly important. But the crisis is actually pretty broad because if you're someone who has been dislocated by the forces of globalization, that is what you are focused on when you talk about the crisis of democracy. If you are someone who watches the endless, I don't work for government anymore, assault on institutions and norms by political leaders and are curious how resilient they indeed are, that is the crisis of democracy that you're worried about. But if you are a national security or foreign policy or military expert, you are looking at authoritarian regimes who increasingly, with new technology, can reach into our societies, exacerbate internal tensions, and have less of an ability to reach decisions. And that is the crisis of democracy that we are on. So I'm not pessimistic about this, but I think we need to be very realistic in scoping the scale of the challenges that we are up against. And I think that we have to get our mojo back on talking about why democracy is so important, not simply for our values, but for our pocketbook and for our security. Thank you. Uh, I'll quickly answer the question about um, the Trump administration political diversification. Are we putting all our eggs in a Trump in the American basket, and is that is that to our detriment? The first thing I would say is that it's we've got to be careful to to um, remember that Donald Trump is not America, and what I mean by that is Donald Trump is one significant element of the United States government, but if you look at the rest of his administration, if you look at Congress, um, you look at the other um, uh, uh, entities in government, those entities matter. That, that, after all, is the beauty of a liberal democratic country with institutions. So we are not putting all our eggs in Donald Trump. We're putting, we are um, putting significant emphasis on the United States government and the various relationships that we have. Now, on uh, President Trump himself, my personal view is that the Australian government, both the, uh, the governments that I've been, um, um, that I was in, the Turnbull government and the Morrison government after that, they have done the right thing. They're trying to get the best parts of uh, Donald Trump and the Trump administration. And what I mean by that is, in Donald Trump, you have a president that is uniquely willing to confront. Um, in my memory, he's the only president, United States president, that has generally got China uh, unbalanced and got China miffed as to what it is now that they should do. Now, that's not, not enough because I think the weaknesses of, the Trump, of Donald Trump's approach is that he doesn't look at alliances, he doesn't consider some of the architecture and institutions that you need to form a good strategy. But in my view, the Australian government as a whole has done a good job of um, trying to leverage off that tendency of the president. Now, our, our job as an ally, and, and I argue America's closest ally in the region, is to try to direct some aspects of that willingness to compete with China um, in, in, into more constructive uh, uh, avenues. The final thing I would say is that we are forming um, pretty good relationships with other countries. We've got a quasi-alliance in some respects with the Japanese, our relationships with Southeast Asian countries, uh, powers, Indonesia, Singapore, have really never been better. Um, but I say that knowing that there is a limitation 
uh, and the numbers have the story as to the extent to which these countries can um, themselves uh, balance or persuade China to behave <coughs> differently. So my, my summary, and I'm not wearing a government hat now, I think the government, and I think the Labor Party's roughly in the same area, the government, I think, is largely in the right space, which we're utilising our alliance with the Americans, we're trying to get the best out of Trump <coughs> administration, uh, and meanwhile, as for example, our efforts with the TPP show, we're working with other countries when there's a need to do so uh, without the Americans. Thank you, John. Now, I'm a little bit torn. If I were at DFAT hosting this, I would just plough on with another bracket of questions. Uh, is everyone happy for me to do that? Maybe we'll take two, but I'm also conscious that there are drinks involved and people will want to talk about drinks. So I'll test the limits of my authority here and ask uh, two uh, remaining questions and then answers followed by Simon's. I think it's going to be a one-minute summing up. Please. Uh, Melissa McIntosh, I'm the federal member for Lindsay. I'm also a former staffer of the US Studies Centre <laughs> and I'd like to congratulate Simon and, and another wonderful report from the centre. I'm quite interested in your point, talk more to the public. And you referenced that government needs to do more to educate the public on the challenges that China poses. So what specifically are you advising government should do and what is the role of non-government entities as part of this communication? Thank you very much, Melissa. Any of the, the final question of the last bracket of two over here? Thank you. Um, Karan Demidia, I'm just a student at the ANU. Um, thanks so much for coming down to Canberra um, and braving the cold. Um, Charles made a very compelling case for why the US's focus, whether that's kind of the trade and economic focus and the military focus, uh, will remain in the Asia-Pacific for the foreseeable future when talking about Hugh White's book. Um, but also, America, at least historically, has an uncanny ability to get involved in the Middle East again and again, against when, even when they're trying to focus. Um, how much do you think are the, like, the possibilities of you know, this renewed, kind of continued American focus on the Asia-Pacific being distracted by other issues, such as the Middle East and Iran and others popping up again and again? And what does that have to do? When they, what's the imp impact on Australia's relationship in that regard? Thanks very much. Now, <coughs> perhaps John first and then Charles uh, to start. So quickly on, on the question about talk more to the public, what might that mean? You know, I, I've looked at what the, the, the public conversation in Australia in the last couple of years, and, and it's delighted me, actually, that a lot of facts that would normally be classified has got out there. So in the main, I'm talking about the uh, revelations about Chinese interference and covert influence. Now, there was a time when governments, both political and bureaucratic, were reluctant to engage publicly in, in, in those issues. But, I, but what Australia has shown, that the more these facts get out there, the more the publics have the right to make up their minds about what kind of regime in China are we dealing with. Yes, we've spoken for 20 years about the positive aspects of the regime. We've only spoken for two years about the negative aspects. I think that balance is being redressed. So to answer your question, what I'm really saying, the role of government, a lot of things that should, that are normally classified should be declassified in the public interest because the public needs to know um, why the government in Australia and other countries, but why in Australia the government is choosing to take 
a tougher line on many aspects with respect to China. And that will only, um, there will only be political ballast for that if those facts are out there, which are normally kept in-house. Thanks very much, John. Um, I don't think the United States will get involved in a war with Iran, but it's always possible. That's the best I can do. And America has a global footprint, so it can't ignore any region. Uh, but it has said repeatedly from the top that this is the priority theater of attention, of resources, and of focus. Uh, but I want to come at the public uh, question, too, because I think it's critically important. So I'll give you the American take, which is different, of course, that the case for not the liberal international order, not the rules-based order, not the American-led order, right? I, I wrote those things, and they convinced no one of anything. The case for internationalism, the case for deeply engaged internationalism in America has always rested on three different things. Fear that without American involvement, something worse will happen. Hope that with American engagement, we have an alternative system that is good for the American people, no less better for most parts of the world, and political leadership. It has to start from the top, and it has to stop from, start from politicians. Otherwise, a public who is engaged sporadically on internationalism <laughs> won't understand why this is important. Second point, you have to explain, I'm talking to you, but I mean any, any MPs who are in this room, why this matters. And you can do it a lot better than I can, or John can. Why this matters to constituents. Talking about spheres of influence sounds bad, but you have to explain why that affects people's pocketbook, their security, and ultimately the political systems that we live in here at home. And then finally, and we'll leave on a very unpopular note, you have to convince your constituents that it's worth spending their money. Because if we're going to compete, underscore, not confront, it's not cost-free. And we have to spend more in the diplomatic lane, but also in the military lane. And without making that argument and just hoping that things will be okay is insufficient to the task that we have at hand. That would be my advice on that. Thanks very much indeed, Charles. Spending more in the diplomatic lane. Uh, You're I, welcome. I certainly support that. Now, Simon, uh, over to you for the very last word. That's very good. Very good Francis, thank you so much. Um, uh, thank you indeed uh, for your time tonight. Thanks to uh, the authors for a compelling report. This is the second time we've launched it. Um, but the attendance tonight, um, um, a little flabbergasting, frankly, on a, on a sitting night that we're able to muster an audience of, of, of this size and of this distinction. Uh, it's, it's, it's truly an honour for those of us at the centre that um, people like yourselves are taking this much interest in our work. Uh, it's, it's truly humbling. Um, thank you. Um, we are about to, on this note, we're hot on the heels of this report. We are producing a, a, a substantial investigation of um, American defence spending over, over the next couple of years. Uh, that's a report we'll be releasing in the next couple of weeks. Um, um, which will answer some of the questions that were sort of left dangling uh, uh, tonight. Um, uh, very, very sobering, uh, the, the question about, about commitment and following through 